wrote a piece um, called Fiat Looks, Let There Be Light. And that came from, I was reading a book, I was in bed late at night reading a book and it said, there was in a statement in it, Fiat Looks, which means let there be light. And it was like, wow! To me that was, it was a light bulb moment and I literally wrote it down. Welcome to Spotlight, Casper's very first podcast. Spotlight is an opportunity for candid conversations with industry professionals, artists, teachers and students about all things performing arts. The Casper team will chat to practitioners about their process, career highlights, future ambitions and the role the arts play in their lives. So in today's podcast, episode one, we shine the spotlight on music featuring the fabulous James Long. James has over 30 years in music education and is well and truly a veteran of the arts. As well as decades in the classroom, his educational research includes a master's in music technology, which was completed at the beginning of the millennium, and more recently, studying online at the Berkeley Music School in Boston in the US of A, where further strings to his bow include Orchestra 101 and 102 and music for film and television. His accolades are extensive and include being noted as an award-winning composer, a writer and arranger for a variety of events, including producing content for corporate clients such as Nike, 3M, Lendlease, Rugby Australia and the list goes on. He's written several musicals for schools and professional companies. He's been a musical director for a number of Casper large-scale events over the past 20 years. And he's a composer of Casper original scores and music, including this year's winner, Fiat Looks, Oh, The Things We Do in 2019, I'm Free and Let's Make Tomorrow Today, literally mentoring thousands of music students and teachers. What a delight it is to have you as our very first guest on Spotlight, Casper's very first podcast season and episode. So welcome, Mr. James Long. Thank you so much, Iris. Well, it certainly sounds like I've been busy and it has been an amazing journey. I've been lucky enough to have two strings to the bow, so to speak, uh, as a music educator and then as a professional musician, composer, arranger, producer, etc. And they're both interweave very preciously in many ways. What I've learnt as an industry practitioner I've brought to the classroom and what I've learnt in the classroom I've also brought out into the industry as well. And I think that's the very thing that makes Casper unique is having that blend of education and industry. So what a gift you are to our team. Are you good to get started? I am, yeah. Let's go on this journey together. All right. So the first question no big surprise. Um, what first got you into music? Uh, it's interesting. We had a piano in our house. There was no one particularly musical in my family, but we had a piano, which I think most, this was in the 60s, it would have been. I was born in 1960. 
and there was a piano in the house. My mum used to play a piece of music, and I've since found out it was called Moonlight and Roses. And she just late at night, I'd hear this piece of music wafting through the house, and I was in the, the cheap seats out right out the back of the house because I was the youngest of four kids. And then one day, I went to the piano, probably about six years old, and played that little riff. Da, 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 just from memory. And, and I don't know how I did it, but I did it. And anyway, um, I came from an Irish Catholic family, and so we all learnt Irish dancing as a child. And I wanted to learn the piano, and my mother said to me, when, or my mum and dad said, when you get a gold medal at Irish dancing, you can, we'll get you piano lessons. And of course, being the precocious little child that I was, I went off and got a gold medal at the next to Stedford. You know, cute, bright, bright, copper tone red hair, freckles, long black socks, shorty, shorty pants and a white shirt with a green tie. Picture that. And uh, so I got my little gold medal for uh, coming first near Stedford. And uh, so then I started piano lessons, and that's how I got into music at a very, uh, probably six and a half, seven. Oh, what a gorgeous story. And I did not know of your Irish dancing background. Yes, they were always brought out once a year for my U12 students on the final day when they were in U12. I allowed them to see me Irish dance. (laughs) Well, you'll have to um, entertain us with that too sometime. So... As a young child, you began your journey with music, learning the piano. Were there any other instruments that crossed your path? Um, I think I played guitar at school and a little bit of flute. When I went to college, I then uh, learnt flute more because we had to pick up additional instruments and things like that. But mainly at school, it was just piano. Oh, and of course, the tuba. I played in the school brass band. I was brought in in year nine to coach one of the percussion players on reading music, uh, the dots and dashes, and I really enjoyed it. It was just such a great camaraderie and making music, and it was big sound. And so, um, you know, I was a reasonably sized boy, and so they said, would you like to play an instrument? I went, sure. And so they put me on the tuba, the double B-flat, and there I was learning to play this, and through that I got to play a few other brass instruments. But it was great fun, and through that I then went on the first flight ever in my life to fly to Tasmania for a band competition and I remember in probably year 10 going to Wagga for the, the Stedford there and playing with about 200 musicians the 1812 Overture, a brass band arrangement of it and this is massive, massive experience for a 15 year old boy. What an opportunity, so is this in the 70s? This would have been in the 70s, yeah, mid 70s. What a great opportunity to be able to tour the country and play with other musicians. And I think when Catholic schools quite had big band programs in those days, uh, and some schools do still, and non-Catholic, of course, and so it just reminds you of the importance of music making, uh, be it choral or instrumental, because as a piano player, quite often you're an independent silo, and it's just so much fun to play with other and to create music with other people. So, young child, by ear, you learn how to play the piano. Did you have any musical experiences early on in primary school? Primary school, I would have just been a normal primary school student, uh, but I was learning from the local nun, and I used to go to a class every once a week on a Wednesday morning or something like that, Sister Elizabeth, and it was quite lovely. I kept in touch with her until she died. And she sat in the audience of the first show I ever conducted when I was at uni, uh, which was very sweet. Uh, she came to that. And so um, that's something that I've also connected with ex-students of mine. It's something that 
I cherish is the opportunity to continue the musical journey that we're all on. You know, I can trace my musical lineage back to Beethoven by saying, well, I know this man who worked with Barry Humphreys, and Barry Humphreys had met Percy Granger, and Percy Granger had met was a student of Grieg, and Grieg was connected to Beethoven. So in some, in, there's a six degrees of separation in my own life to Beethoven. Some backward way, I try and keep that with my own students going as well. Oh, that's a, that's a beautiful linear um, description of where you're from and you've come from and the influence others have had on you and then you're reciprocating to your students. You had the opportunity to study music in high school. You also were a part of the extracurricular band program. This inspired you to then go on and study at university. What was your degree that you chose straight out of school? I did a teaching degree. So it was a diploma in those days and with, with a focus on music and history, which is my other great love. Then I graduated and went to my first school, and then I got a graduate diploma in performing arts. And then um, I went on to do a master's degree in music education and then did a master's degree in music technology and, and have continued studying throughout the whole of my life. And I like this concept of being a lifelong learner. Um, as educators, that's one of the greatest things about being as a teacher. You're learning something new every single day. It's so exciting. Absolutely. And I think it's so interesting um, as a teacher that music has been a part of your life since you can remember. But also, what about you as an artist? What inspired you to make music? Someone said, you can do this. And that was a very interesting thing. I was about 23 and I really hadn't done much creative stuff in a formal way. And... um, a lyricist named Melvin Morrow, he was the writer of a musical called Shout and a number of, of shows that are uh, quite famous ones. And he said, I'm writing a show for, I can't even remember now what it was, and I want you to write the music for it. And how old were you? I was 23. Wow. And I went, okay, as you do. <laughs> and this is the greatest advice I was given by uh, a mentor of mine named Spud Murphy. His, his words were, say yes to everything. And so I also say this to my students now. Just say yes. Figure out how you're going to do it afterwards, but just say yes. Carpe diem. Seize. And uh, and so I went on to write. And from that, then um, I worked with Mel on a number of projects. And that's when we, uh, back in in the 80s, we wrote a song for the Sydney Sesquicentenary Competition, uh, which we won the... uh, We came first in the songwriting, songwriting competition and won money and prestige and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and we're up against the chap that wrote uh, I Am Australian. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he wrote a song called Say Me, Say You, Say Me, Say Sydney Sesquicentenary. It didn't win. <laughs> uh, so, um, and that really is what it is. The opportunities will appear in many, many different guises. Just say yes. Great motto. I think we need a, a T-shirt for that. Just say yes. Have a go, right? So... Tell us a little bit then about your creative process as a composer, arranger, as an artist. Okay. Um, Again, it seizes you at the most obscure moments. I wrote um, a song uh, last year called Oh, The Things We Do, and it was designed as a celebration of what Casper does. And I actually wrote the song when I was driving back from the Central Coast to Sydney one Sunday morning to visit my family. And through my I'm driving along going do 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 da da do do da da just out of fun and then I went, Oh my gosh, 
that's a bit of fun. So then I just started continuing. And then I thought throwing. Then I thought of celebrating Dr. Zeus and that concept of oh the things we do. And I got off the expressway, pulled over, took out my phone, and just dictated what I'd been going in my head for the 25 minutes on the expressway. And then it was like, oh, you've released it. And then I could just drive, spent a beautiful Christmas with my family. It was our Christmas celebration. And then went back into the studio and just started putting it together. And from out of that initial idea came the song, Oh, The Things We Do. And is that a usual process for you creatively, that... You get an idea and jot it down in that moment. Absolutely. Yeah, as much as I can. Sometimes it's just a, a doodle on a piece of paper. Um, this year we wrote a piece um, called Fit Looks, Let There Be Light. And that came from, I was reading a book. I was in bed late at night reading a book and it said, there was in a statement in it, Fit Looks, which means let there be light. And it was like, wow. To me that was, it was a light bulb moment. And I literally wrote it down. And I thought that was such an exciting thing because I'd heard the term fiat looks and I'm not a Latin scholar and, and obviously we know the, the line, let there be light. And um, then when we were looking at what the Casper direction and show would be this year, and I thought, well, there's your opening number. <laughs> and from that, uh, then I went on a journey going back to look at Genesis and what the lyrics were there and what we could use for lyrics. And then came this song, which I co-wrote with um, Philippe Marc Ancatil. And to go into the studio with a rough of what the lyrics would be, to go in the studio with a rough of what the song will sound like, what the melodic material, but that's really it. And we then worked together, and at the end of the day, we had the rough of a complete song. And one of the fun parts of it, we're going, okay, well, one of my... The parts that I really love of the song where it goes... Um, let there be, let it be, let be, let there be light. So it's just a repetition of the phrase, let there be. And we, and that purely came from us going, just throwing things out all the time, going, let there be, let there be, let, how would you sing that? And then we just looked at each other and went, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be light. And then it just it took off from there and you go, that's the creative process. The power of improv and playing and allowing yourself to play. That's correct, yeah. And in a safe environment. And who would have thought then that that song would have so much meaning in our current context, right? Um, so through your creative process over the years, you've been inspired by what you're thinking, what you're reading. How does that creative process differ if you have a product to fill, if there's a timeline if there's content or criteria around what you have to create. So it's more product than the creative process yeah. of a natural evolve. An example might be um, a number of years ago, I was working, working as a music supervisor for the Commonwealth Heads of Government Conference in Perth, and they, they wanted an opening number. They wanted it to be about the Indigenous six seasons. In, Indigenous, in the Noongar language, they have six seasons, to, to describe the very seasons of the year. Uh, they had a track, um, which I was to, to work to, and then I had to write a choral piece for four-part choir that would sit above that, and soloist. That was all going to be choreographed by Jason Lewis, who five years later I got to work with again as, in as a Casper team member. So I was up at my studio, and I was just thinking, oh, where do you start? And I was looking out at the ocean at the time and thought, and I just could hear the ocean rolling and that sort of stuff. So, again, you're looking for inspiration. But I had a deadline, 
which was due on this date. So I wrote this piece of music. I then had to release it, send it off to Perth, where it was recorded by a four-part choir for the rough, and then it was shot back to me. And I have to say it was one of the most exciting things in my life to actually... When you're writing as an independent person, and you, in your head you can hear how, it's, how you think it will sound, then it goes off to a recording studio and a group of artists bring their musicality to it and it comes home and it's just so exciting to hear what was once a blank piece of paper and you had a deadline when it had to be filled by and there it was. Have you experienced the dreaded block, writer's block? Um, yes, but it, it doesn't rear its ugly head too much because I'm a factory writer. I just have to get it done, I get it done. That's it, full stop. It's literally a mindset. It is. As I talk with um, my composition students, is what we have is a toolbox and we're builders. So we can choose how we want to use our toolbox to build this piece of music and, and what will be the walls and what will be the roof. So we have all those skills, it's just how we put it together. And that helps you get through the block as well. And also a deadline. <laughs> Absolutely. And I guess to the team that you work with, each uh, artist brings their own bag of tricks yeah. um, and inspiration. So that segues nicely into my next question. Who, if you could choose anybody, who would you most like to collaborate with? I think a lyricist like Tim Rice. I think Tim Rice, uh, and this is a little last century for a lot of people, um, or Lin-Manuel Miranda, just the sheer genius of his lyrics for Hamilton and the sheer genius of Tim Rice's lyrics for everything he's written as well. I think th that's what that I hold in the highest regard. The people who can, in one line, sum up an emotion or an event. Evoke so much feeling. Yeah. And also, particularly with Lynn's work with Hamilton, can make history so accessible and reimagined in the genre. Remarkable. And, and he's just this genius of his storytelling. Music, of course, but his storytelling is, is just... Next uh, level. It's the next level, yeah. So... Uh, to date, can you tell us about your greatest collaboration? I think working with Phil is, is an amazing collaboration. Um, I was in a studio with him yesterday working on a project and uh, we worked very well together. I had, um, again, going back to the collaboration for the Commonwealth Heads of Government Conference, I worked with Guy Sebastian on a song which he wrote specifically for that event and then I was working with a couple of schools, but they weren't to know that Guy was <laughs> going to be the finale of this of the Queen's presentation for the, the Queen and all the common heads of government in the world. So <laughs> I got Guy's track. I had to take everything off it, arrange the choral part the kids would sing, then create a new backing track, which had nothing to do with his original song, get the kids to come in and record their four-part harmonies without them knowing what the song was going to be, and then shoot that off to Guy and his production people who would then mix it all together, and then he would appear magically at the end, and it was going to be exciting for the kids and all that sort of stuff. So it's terrifying sometimes, but just to work at that level with people like that as well. And I think that's the nature of the industry too, not only being open to ideas and who you're working with, but flexible in your approaches. As you know, with schools, a lot of our large-scale events, there hasn't been a whole scale rehearsal until often the day or the day before. Um, so sometimes a live show happens 
without it ever being run purely by the sheer numbers. What kind of pressure does that put on you as a musical director? Again, you're after the best possible result. And again, it's, it comes down to organisation for all of this. Once you've got your tools of what you do, then you have to be organised to know that uh, even just a sound call, just remember that the sound call has to happen, tuning has to happen. Those really, really kind of basic things, but they're the building blocks of a performance as well. Unless that's completely well organised, you're just not going to make it on the day. Having backups, having uh, covers, having uh, being prepared for whatever scenario happens on the day, uh, and that comes from experience. And also as a teacher, the good risk assessment. Yes, <laughs> Exactly. So what would you be doing right now if it wasn't for your music career as an educator, composer, arranger? I think I'd be a traveller. That's the thing that I love most in the world. And in this environment, of course, that's all been curtailed. I was in... um, Originally this year, in a few months' time, I was going to be flying to Singapore and then to Istanbul and travelling for two weeks through Istanbul and then going up to Berlin and home. Istanbul, because I'm fascinated by the city. I find it such an amazing city that has a life that is thousands of years old. And even in preparation, I've been listening to a podcast on the history of Byzantium. And I'm up to episode 217, and I'm still only up to 10.30. And it, you know, Byzantium kind of finishes around 1460, and then it becomes um, Istanbul. A little bit of light listening there. Yes, it's travelling between here and the central coast. But um, that's my great love. And, and, and through that comes connection. How do things connect? You know, how does Byz- you know, Constantinople become Byzantium, which becomes Istanbul? How does this piece of music by Beethoven end up as a song by Billy Joel? You know, that connection. Connections are what gives me um, joy and challenges me and makes me interested what have been some of your struggles as a musician? I think the fact that I'm a, a mediocre musician is, is a good point. I've never been a performer. I've always been someone behind the musicians, so a writer, a producer, a arranger. I'm OK, but I certainly am not at the level of the people that we get to work with us in Casper. Uh, and so that's always been a struggle. I'm dyslexic, so that's a very interesting way that that rears its ugly head. Quite often with lyrics, I'll completely write words in the wrong way, so I have to have people double-checking everything all the time that I do. As a kid, that was a really big frustrating thing. But as an adult, I learnt how to handle that and then also learnt that it can be take you places which other people don't go in some ways. Absolutely. It frees up a... a it's, maybe it's a creativity that you get. Uh, and, sorry to interrupt, the dyslexia has had no impact in composing because you get to hear it? Yeah, it's interesting. No, it doesn't. And, and I couldn't tell left from right as a child, like literally. Someone would say, turn left, and i just look at them with you know, terror on my face till I learnt the piano. And then as soon as I started playing the piano, left was the bass, right was the treble. So, again, so, those connections, yeah. right? So, someone would say, turn left. I go, uh, I'm, I'm waving my left hand now. Uh, and I go, OK, bass. I go that way. Uh, so that's an interesting way how, how music, in fact, gave me a pathway through my dyslexia. Uh, and, you know, I've got two master's degrees now, so it's, it's, it's not something that sort of has ever held me back. 
So, James, such an intriguing human you are with such a depth of knowledge and insight. If there were three things you could pass on to students or teachers who may be listening, what would that be? Firstly, say yes. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Say yes to every opportunity that you're given. It's quite remarkable that where that will lead you because you just don't know where that's going to take you. Secondly, you have a blank piece of paper in front of you. In five minutes, five hours, five days, five weeks, something is going to exist that has never existed before. Isn't that the most remarkable thing? The most remarkable thing to think that you are responsible for creating something that's never, ever existed before. And I think my third piece of advice is enjoy the moment. Just love every moment that you have an opportunity to experience things because life is going to throw you in ways that you would never know. I never knew as a 15-year-old boy that I would be living the life that I live now. To have had the life experiences, to have had the creativity, to have had the love, to have had the opportunities I've had. So live for every moment. And I think we might leave it right there. Thank you so much for that wonderful advice. Thank you for inspiring on a daily basis, without all of the recordings, the hundreds of teachers and students that you work with and anyone who has the pleasure and opportunity to listen to your um, creations on behalf of that audience. We thank you, Mr James Long. Thanks, Horace.